0: to Terrify.
3: Good evening, children of the night. Come on into the cabin and get warm. Virginia has turned to a bitter winter, Cold and icy, but in here, we'll keep you warm. Get something to eat and something to drink and settle on in. With my new real life job, I've had a significant decrease in the amount of time I've had to spend behind the wheel of my car every week getting to work, which is also my podcast listening time. As regular listeners know, I'm a fan of Josh and Chuck over at Stuff You Should Know. As I was working on getting caught up on the podcast that I listened to, I came across their episode about the satanic panic. Of the 1980s. Well, as a child of the 80s and of a conservative Christian family, I remember quite well my parents telling me that gangs of Satanists were roaming the streets looking for blonde-haired, blue-eyed boys like me to sacrifice to the Dark One himself. Of course, that was terrifying, but I outgrew that, the terror and the blonde hair, that is. But those were real things in my world, the understanding that at any point I could have been snatched up by some spooky guys in robes and sacrificed to the devil as part of a satanic ritual. Had that as a reality for years. But that satanic ritual abuse lingered around for a long time, and we looked for demons under every rock and around every corner. Maybe that's where I got my first good taste of this horror stuff. Let's get on to our fiction for the night. We have a single story... This one from A.C. Lippert. A.C. Lippert is a graduate student at the University of Louisville, but he is originally from Grand Ledge, Michigan. Along with writing and reading, he enjoys bouldering, exploring the city, and supporting the Arsenal Football Club. Come on, you Gunners! His fiction has also appeared in Lao Zoo, Down in the Dirt Delta Howl, and Conceit Magazine. He lives in Louisville, Kentucky, with his wife Stephanie and puppy Raptar. Now we will hear Mr. Lippert's he dreams.
2: I sat up in bed, waiting for Dad to come tuck me in. Mom had changed my bed sheets. These were the last pair in the house since I had barfed on all the others. Each of the last three nights. I woke up a few hours after falling asleep and hacked my lungs out and heaved and lurched out all my stomach's contents. Mom had thrown the dirty sheets away, even the ones that matched my dinosaur waterbed and dinosaur wallpaper. I had wrecked that pair the first night I got sick with a green and red chunky mess. The sheets on the bed now felt nice. They were murder-red and soft and very silky and were cool on my hot body. I couldn't get comfortable, though. The covers seemed to rest on me wrong. I shifted from side to side and allowed my body to sway along with the miniature sea storm rolling across my waterbed. So far that day had been horrible. Mom had forced me to go see the old doctor with gray hair and wrinkled face. His breath reeked of Italian food. The doctor had stuck a popsicle stick down my throat. He said it was to check for strep but he kind of giggled when I gagged, and I had the feeling that this man liked hurting children. If I'd been bigger and stronger like Dad, I would have shoved the doctor back on his butt and crammed the popsicle stick down his throat to make him gag. But I was only ten, still young and helpless against an adult's authority. The doctor's fat belly gurgled a lot of bizarre noises while examining me, and I could feel his stomach rub up against me like a cat brushing against an owner's leg. One time, the doctor's midsection grumbled so loud that I was reminded of the time Mr. Willow screamed at me for breaking his window while playing baseball in the backyard with the twins from across the street. The doctor's stomach was so bloated that I imagined he was pregnant with an alien that would burst out of him at any moment. I sat in the doctor's office for what seemed like hours while he listened to me breathe and poked my stomach. Mom sighed gratefully when the doctor confessed he couldn't figure out what was making me vomit at night. Probably just an odd bug that's going around, the doctor had said. He had given me a grape sucker that turned my tongue purple on the car ride home. My breath still smelled like grapes as I sat on my bed, waiting for Dad to come tuck me in. Dad walked into my room holding a plastic bucket, a towel, and a glass of Sprite, and an orange pill bottle. He placed the pills and Sprite on my bedside table under the table lamp, which shone down and gave the transparent orange bottle a halo, as if its soul were glowing. Dad spread out the towel on the wood floor and put the bucket on top. He sat on the edge of my bed and explained that the bucket was in case I felt sick again in the night and couldn't make it to the bathroom. I already knew it was a puke bucket but I guess Dad had forgot that Miss Andrews described me as the smartest kid in my class during the last parent-teacher conference. Dad opened the orange bottle and handed me a round pill. The doctor said these pills were the newest and most potent anti-nausea medicine on the market. The doctor had pinched my cheek and claimed that the pills would keep a raw rabbit down a vegan's throat. I didn't know what a vegan was, but I didn't care. I just wanted to go home. I hated the doctor. All he ever did was pick on me. I felt helpless. He shined bright lights in my eyes, ears, and nose, froze my bare skin with his weird necklace, gave me shots, and made me gag when he jabbed the popsicle sticks down my throat. And he seemed to enjoy his job. Yeah, he definitely loved to torture children. Dad nudged the glass of Sprite into my hand and said, "'Come on, buddy, please?' His short brown hair was pushed to the side, and his blue eyes looked concerned. He looked like a boy in that moment, more like a friend than a parent. I know taking medicine is a pain in the neck, but it's not that bad, really. Do I eat it like food? I'd never swallowed pills before. The only medicine I ever got was the gross syrup that felt like snot and tasted like already chewed bubblegum that someone had scraped off the bottom of a schoolroom desk. I looked down at the pill in my palm and noticed it was the size of a pea. I clenched my teeth and shuddered. Just thinking about peas drenched my mouth in their disgusting taste. I don't want to. You have to, Danny. This medicine will make you feel better. Now come on. All you have to do is put it on your tongue and take a big drink of Sprite, but don't chew it. It won't even have a taste. Will you tell me a story afterwards? Dad tucked me in every night, and he always read to me before bed mostly Goosebump books, but my favorite was when he'd make up a story. We had finished reading R.L. Stein's The Barking Ghost last night, so we didn't have anything else to read, and this was the perfect night for one of Dad's spooky stories. But every once in a while, heat lightning flickered through them and illuminated the window across from my bed, as if someone was looking in and taking a picture. The wind lashed against the glass. If you take your medicine, yes, I'll tell you a story. I gagged the first time I tried to swallow the pill. Dad slapped my back with his hand as I coughed up Sprite and the pill onto my sheets. Dad plucked the white pill off the wet spot and handed it back to me. I had tried to swallow the pill like Mom did, placing the pill on my tongue and snapping my head back after taking a quick drink. But I must have swallowed wrong, because the pill pinballed against the hangball in the back of my throat. Mom took a pill every night before dinner. One time, I got scared and asked her if she was sick. She wasn't. She said it was just medicine to make sure things stayed the same. I tried taking my medicine again, this time as if swallowing a clump of chewed food and found the pill went down much smoother. Entry 1, October 2, 2010 My name is Danny Groverland. And this is my private journal. So if I'm alive and your eyes are groping my handwriting, you are raping my secret thoughts. So put this journal back. The only way in heaven you'll have my permission to read this entry is if my lungs no longer inflate. This is for my peepers only. This includes you, Dr. Feller. No peeking. Dr. Feller gave me this journal three weeks ago when my medication plan changed. He said this journal was somewhere where I could release my thoughts of aggression and hostility. Within the first three months of my court sentence stay here at the psychopath prison hospital belonging to Massachusetts, I had attacked another inmate, and for the last three years or so, I've been forced to take medications because I was considered dangerous. I didn't mean to hurt anybody, though. Accidents happen, right? The other inmates are my friends. Why would I want to hurt any of them? "'It wasn't my fault that Trey Growler almost died. "'The accident occurred when everyone was in the cafeteria for lunchtime. "'I slipped on a wet spot while walking between two tables, "'and somehow my fork happened to get lodged "'in the back of Trey Growler's pimply neck. "'My previous medication plan made me feel calm and sleepy, "'and I mostly laid on my bed and read while locked in my bedroom. "'But since Dr. Feller took me off the anger suppressants, "'I've become agitated.' Now I mostly waste my hours by prowling my confined, concrete domain like the nutcase in my favorite short story, skulking her room and rubbing away that hideous yellow wallpaper. I admired this journal's cow-patterned cover as soon as it came into my possession, but the journal's pages have remained blank until this very minute. I came here when I was eleven, and I'm fourteen now, And this journal is the first thing that has actually been mine in the last four years. I've been caged here at McLean Juvenile Psychiatric Institute in Belmont, Massachusetts for so long now that I barely remember the life before coming here, being a bird, free to leap out of my nest and fly around the sky. For the last three weeks, this journal has collected dust while sitting on a wooden desk that is pressed against the white-painted brick wall opposite my bed. The desk is small, as if made for a goblin. I have to squat in the chair just to write in this journal. As soon as Dr. Feller gave me this journal, I was intimidated by its pale emptiness. The journal's blank pages reminded me of the glow that a child has before his innocence is stripped from him. I possessed that glow once, but this savage world stole it from me years before I was ready to grow up. So How could I destroy this journal's purity when I was constantly reminded of what happened in my horrific life? What if I messed up and wrote the wrong thing and ruined the journal's chastity? But I cannot bear this burden any longer. Last week I started having dreams, horrifying, malevolent dreams that dig into my subconscious mind and unearth my growing angst. Every night I enact the murder of my slumbering parents and wake too late, only after I have punctured their loving flesh and bathed in their bodily fluids. The guilt inside me is smothering. I can barely breathe. I cannot rest. I feel as if I am in survival mode. I am drowning in the murderous accusations made against me. They are swallowing me whole. I need this journal to hear my story and help me put this crumbling cookie back on the baking sheet. I need to know if I actually murdered my peaceful parents on June 26, 2006, with nothing but my naked hands and a knife, as the entire world claims. How could I, a loving son, act on such diseased impulses if I didn't have them? But my psychologist, Dr. Feller, assures me that I'm guilty of the crime. He occasionally incriminates me with his words— but he mostly projects his judgment when his eyes glare at me and he tilts his head like a baffled puppy and itches his two-day-old gray stubble. He tells me, at least once a week in our meetings, that my mind has merely repressed these memories. He says that my brain has a delete button and my fragile mind utilized this defense mechanism to protect me from my past. I nestled into my fluffy T-Rex comforter as Dad got up and turned off the bedroom light. I loved my dinosaur covers so much that my sleeping mind had known to protect them from my gushing dinner the last three nights. These covers had a picture of a Tyrannosaurus Rex flashing his serrated jaws, roaming through a forest of prehistoric trees and bushes. All the other dinosaurs hid in fear of the king. The T-Rex's teeth were so white and clean, they looked like they were made of fresh pearls that had just been ripped off an oyster's tongue. They had never known the salty scarlet of an herbivore's blood, but every time I studied this beast that kept me warm at night, I imagined raw meat gnashing between its teeth. The look in the T-Rex's eyes was lethal, and it displayed his killer instinct. My waterbed sloshed and waved like a boat had driven through when Dad sat on the edge. The lamp on my nightstand was still on, and its glow stretched across my room and made the triceratops and velociraptors on the wallpaper look like they were lurking around a caveman's fire. The light's light slapped Dad right in the face, but Dad's whiskers created a dark shadow on his cheeks. You ready for your story? Yes. Once upon a time... "'There were aliens from outer space,' Dad started. "'His hands were folded on his knees, and his demeanor was serious. "'He didn't smile like he normally did while making up stories. "'Dad's blue-eyed gaze was serious, like he was telling me his darkest secret. "'These aliens were from a planet called Malta for Dare. "'There were no trees or grass on this planet, no water, "'and most of the planet was covered with mountains.' The aliens lived in caves that dug deep into the planet. What did they look like? I clutched my covers and pulled them into my chest. Dad knew I liked stories to be scary. Well, these aliens weren't the little green Martians like on TV. These aliens were tall and sickly skinny and had purple skin. Their eyes were silver and big, really big actually, because they lived in caves and had to see in the dark. "'Dad paused and grinned. "'I felt like we were on summer vacation, "'sitting around the campfire behind Grandma and Grandpa's house "'in the north of Maine. "'Dad brushed his hair to the side of his forehead "'and placed his hand back on his knee. "'And those aliens from Malta for Dare came to Earth one night. "'They flew their UFO to gather up little girls "'and take them back to their caves. "'Each alien from Malta for Dare was allowed one little girl.' This species ate girls piece by piece by piece. They started with gobbling down the girls' toes, and they ended by chomping on their teeth. The aliens didn't sleep, didn't play games, they just ate. And twenty years later, when they finished drinking every last drop of blood and had eaten all the little girls' toes and fingers, eyes, bones, and teeth, they blasted back to earth and snatched another female child in the night. "'Dad cleared his throat. "'He reached behind him and took a drink of my glass of Sprite that was on the table. "'What happened next? "'An alien named Ned had come down to a town called Bloomington. "'The moon and stars were shining up above, and they reminded Ned of his journey. "'Ned crept up to a little girl's bedroom window and peeked inside. "'She was sleeping. "'Ned could see that her blonde hair was frizzy and looked scrumptious.' Ned slid the window open and lifted himself inside. "'I'm going to bed,' Mom shouted from down the hall. "'You comin'? If not, I'll be asleep in five minutes.' "'All right, buddy, I'm going to bed,' Dad said, but he didn't even look tired. And now, he was talking a lot quicker than he did while telling a story. "'I'm beat. You ready to turn in?' "'No, I'm not even tired.' What about the rest of the story? Ned took the little blonde girl back to Malta for a dare and ate her. Happy? Okay, let's say your prayers. Dad and I said my nightly prayers together. My family went to church every Sunday morning, though I thought church was boring. But I kind of liked saying my prayers every night because I got to spend some alone time with my dad. Dad stood up and flicked off my lamp. Sweet dreams, son. He shut the door and left me in complete darkness. I listened to Dad clomp down the hall towards his bedroom while I thought about the aliens from Malta for Dare. I woke in the morning and my sheets were clean. The puke bucket was empty. I was warm under the weight of my T-Rex covers, but the air in the bedroom was chilly. Somehow my bedroom window had been open throughout the night and I was almost positive that it was closed when I had fallen asleep. My mind jumped back to Dad's story about the aliens from Malta for Dare. Was the story true? Were there actually aliens that snuck into kids' bedrooms at night? My arms were pocked with goosebumps. In school, I'd learned that real aliens didn't exist. But what if Miss Andrews was wrong? I huddled under my covers for several minutes and decided that Dad must have snuck back into my room and opened the window while making sure I wasn't getting sick. I was the first to awake in the morning, which meant that I was the first to notice that all the windows in the house, not just the one in my bedroom, had been jammed open at some point throughout the night. Entry 2. October 4, 2010 Tonight, after I returned from dinner in the cafeteria, I colored in the channels between the white-painted bricks and the wall of my state-appointed bedroom with a permanent marker. The idea came to me when I was thinking about my childhood, back when everyone thought I was just an innocent young boy. One time, Mom told me that I drew all over our kitchen wall with a black felt marker when I was five, which had made Dad furious. Mom claimed that everything became funny as time passed. Am I really the beast that Dr. Feller thinks I am? "'Did I chop and flay and hack my parents' flesh with a knife "'like a butcher preparing a pig or a hunter gutting his prize? "'I don't remember any of these things, "'but everyone is so convincing. "'Dr. Feller knows that I committed this deed "'as if he had watched the events unfold. "'But wouldn't I know if I'd killed my own mom and dad? The struggle is tearing me apart. "'Am I evil, or am I good? "'Yesterday was Monday.' so I had to meet with Dr. Feller. I have school every weekday from 10 a.m. until 2 p.m. Then I meet with Dr. Feller from 2.30 until 3.15. A prison guard escorted me, this happens every day now since I'm not taking any prescriptions, through the bright hallways of McLean Juvenile Psychiatric Institution until we reached a wooden door with a plaque hanging at eye level. On the plaque's black surface, golden letters spelled out Dr. Edwin J. Feller. I pushed into Dr. Feller's office and discovered him waiting for me in his psychologist's chair. That chair is rooted like a tree in the middle of the room. Dr. Feller's chair looks like it were made for a fat person, and it's brown and leather and comfy, and the leather sighs as if in pain when Dr. Feller shifts his position. The patient's couch is pushed up against the office wall, and a coffee table separates Dr. Feller's chair from the patient's couch. A painting hangs on the wall above the couch. It's a painting of a gondola gliding through a Venetian canal. Dr. Feller always boasts about how his wife painted that pearl-pretty picture, as he always says, but I think it's a stupid saying. In fact, that painting is the nastiest cliché I've ever seen. I want to rip it off the wall and annihilate it every time I lay down on the couch and that painting looms over me like angry storm clouds. Dr. Feller has a computer that rests upon his desk in the back of the room. Most of the time, Dr. Feller waits for me behind the desk, but yesterday he must have been eager to check my mental health. I strolled over to the couch with my head down and only peeked at Dr. Feller out of the corner of my eyes. I lied down and looked up at the ceiling like a stargazer. This is how I always enter Dr. Feller's office, because I hate seeing all of his opinions and judgments displayed in his expressions. I didn't move, and I didn't make a sound for several minutes. I just looked at the ceiling. Dr. Feller tried to smash the silence by asking me about my weekend, but I didn't answer. I waited until the silence I'd created had leaked into the room's every crevice, nook, and cranny. I glanced over and noticed that Dr. Feller's legs had started to jitter, probably trying to stir up the room's smothering silence. I imagined my mother and father's corpses lying in their caskets, buried under six feet of earth, experiencing that same silence and stagnation. I wondered if my father's hair was still short and brown and made him look like a boy the way it did the night he tucked me in and told me the story about the aliens from Malta for Dare. I wondered if I exhumed his casket and tore it open and pried his eyelids apart, if his eyes were still blue as sapphires. I wondered if my mother's knife wounds were still sewn shut or if time had eaten the mortician's stitching and exposed her rotting bowels. I wondered if her casket smelled like decaying organs and if ants were devouring her squishy flesh. I've been having memories... I finally said to Dr. Feller. "'Memories about the few days before I came here. "'I can't stop my brain from replaying these memories over and over again. "'This didn't happen when I took my anger suppressants. "'I didn't want to look at him, so I kept my eyes targeted at the ceiling. "'I heard a scratching noise and knew that Dr. Feller was rubbing his fingernails "'against the gray bristle on his cheeks. "'I detested that look.' His eyes looked sharper than kitchen knives when he rubbed his beard stubble like that, and his stare felt heavier than an anvil. I clenched my teeth together when I heard the soft abrasive swish of his fingernails running across his whiskers. Would you like to go back on that medication? I'm trying to help you, Daniel. I'm trying to help you control your emotions and desires, and maybe, someday, you can have some sort of normalcy back in your life. No. I said, I don't want the drugs, but why is this happening to me? I can't get these thoughts out of my head. Well, Daniel, some memories are so painful that your mind completely erases them. Maybe some of them are coming back to you because your mind thinks that now it's strong enough to remember. You also took that medication for a long time. Your body just takes time to adjust to your new daily routine. I kept my eyes on the blank white ceiling. I could still hear the rustle of Dr. Feller's fingernails through his beard. A muffled shriek slipped under the office's closed doors, and I wondered if my friend Raymond Carr had created that noise. His psychologist's office was only a few doors over, and Raymond's sessions began at the same time as mine. I concluded that Raymond had screamed, and I wondered why. I chomped my teeth back together and restrained myself from telling Dr. Feller any more. I had already told him too much about my secret thoughts. I didn't want to say anything else. That would just give Dr. Feller more evidence to support his theory that I'm insane and murdered my sleeping parents. Raymond showed me his pet spider over the weekend. I said, I laced my hands together and rested them on my chest. Until then, I hadn't realized how hard I was breathing. It's a daddy long leg, and it lives in the corner above Raymond's bed. I talked about more nonsense like this until my session was over at 3.15. A muscular prison guard knocked on the door and walked me back to my cell. I see you've been getting artistic on me, Dr. Feller said when he entered my room a few hours later. I was supposed to be doing homework, but instead... "'He sat down on the edge of my twin-sized bed "'and fetched a folded magazine from the inside pocket of his jacket. "'His collared shirt was yellow, and his belly bulged as he sat. "'He reminded me of the doctor that smelled like Italian food, "'the doctor that my mom always made me go to when I was sick. "'Dr. Feller was in his late fifties now. "'His skin was starting to wrinkle, "'and all of a sudden he looked like my childhood doctor's twin.' Dr. Feller's feet brushed the leather straps hanging down from my bed frame and the buckles jingled. He held a copy of the June 2006 issue of Child Psychology magazine. He said that the same issue had been sitting on my mother's bedstand the night she was murdered and there was an article about disturbed children that I should read. I snatched the magazine from his hand and placed it on my desk next to my journal. He thought that this magazine's article would somehow ease my mind, or maybe bring back a memory that would prove I'm dysfunctional. He said there had been a noticeable change in my behavior lately, not a violent alteration, but that I'm restless. My clothes had begun to wear me, and I consistently look like a young child that has been smacked around and kept up long past bedtime dr feller thinks that i'm old enough to handle reading the magazine article and also that i'm old enough to understand the magazine's significance since my thoughts are no longer clouded by prescription drugs doctor thank you i said standing between him and my desk i didn't want dr feller to even think about reading my journal last night i wrote a story about a teenager who kills a psychiatrist i wrote the story just for fun the story wasn't about me, but I don't think Dr. Feller would have appreciated it as much as I do. I continued. Do you know the name of the anti-nausea medication I was prescribed just before my parents were killed? No, I don't quite remember, he said, as he stood up an inch towards the doorway. Why do you ask? My stomach didn't feel good last night, I said. I was just wondering if that's something you might prescribe me, since it had worked so well. It was the morning of June twenty-third, two 2006. The house was chilly since every window had been opened at some point in the night, so I grabbed a blanket from the hallway closet and sat in the living room and watched television until my parents left their bedroom. It was the morning of June twenty-third, two 2006. The house was chilly since every window in the house had been opened at some point during the night, so I grabbed a blanket from the hallway closet and sat in the living room and watched television until my parents left their bedroom. The house seemed abandoned. I had started watching TV around 9 o'clock, but my parents didn't come out of their bedroom until 11. Mom and Dad were both on vacation from work, so they had been sleeping in all week, but not usually this late. I thought I heard them wake up and get out of bed around 10, but I guess it was just my imagination. I never forgot how lonely and isolated I felt that morning, because I had felt the exact same feeling my first night at McLean Juvenile Psychiatric Institution. How'd your night go, sport? Looks like that medication worked, after all, Dad said as he walked into the living room. His hair was damp and dismayed, and he smiled when he talked. Dad had lots of energy that morning and reminded me of the night before when he looked like a boy, not like my father at all, but like a friend from school. Nope, I slept through the night, but you already knew that. I did? How so? Didn't you come and check on me while I was sleeping? Didn't you open the window last night? Dad wore navy gym shorts and a gray tank top. He looked around and noticed the windows were open. It wasn't me. Are you sure you didn't open them and just forgot? No. I thought you opened them when I was sleeping. The windows in my bedroom were open, too. It wasn't me. He looked around, confused. In fact, I remember closing them right before I came to tuck you in. Must have been those aliens I told you about, right? I'm sure your mother opened them as I tucked you in. Dad shrugged his shoulders and walked over to the kitchen to help Mom make lunch. I didn't know if he was serious about the aliens. He sounded like he was joking. But the windows had been closed when I went to sleep, and I was sure Mom hadn't opened them. She didn't like leaving the windows open at night. She worried about intruders. Were aliens actually real? What if everyone had been lying to me the entire time? I started to wonder if Dad was actually telling me the truth last night and had just hoped that I thought the story sounded fake. We ate chicken tenders and macaroni and cheese for lunch that day. After lunch, I convinced Mom and Dad that I felt fine, so he let me play catch with Timmy and Charlie Hathaway, the identical twins from across the street. They looked exactly alike. I was only able to tell them apart because Timmy wore black thick-rimmed glasses and Charlie didn't. Timmy always complained that Charlie got the good eyes. Timmy and Charlie had come outside to break in new gloves that their parents had bought them. My mitt was a few years old, but Dad had bought me a really nice glove made from real leather, so it was still in great shape. Timmy and Charlie told me a story while we threw the ball back and forth about a girl named Lizzie Borden that lived in a town only 30 miles away called Fall River, Massachusetts. I went inside and ate dinner at Timmy and Charlie's house after catch. Their mom made lasagna. I didn't eat much because Mrs. Hathaway used sauce with mushrooms. Then we watched my favorite movie, Jurassic Park. The best part was when the Velociraptors ripped apart the T-Rex with their talons. Then, after the movie, Timmy and Charlie and I roamed around their backyard pretending we were dinosaurs. Charlie was the T-Rex. Timmy and I were Brontosauruses. Charlie ran around and pounced on us and fake devoured us, but Timmy quit when I accidentally knocked his glasses into the grass and almost broke them. Then Mrs. Hathaway said it was time for me to go home. Dad took me in again that night. I sat up in bed with the covers only up to my knees when Dad walked in. He carried that orange pill bottle in one hand and my glass of Sprite in the other. The plastic puke bucket still sat on the towel next to my bed from the night before. The toy box in the corner of the room was open, and my action figures were scattered on the floor. I was supposed to put them away earlier, but I hadn't. My waterbed rolled like a lake as he sat down on the edge. He looked more tired than he had the night before. He had worked in the yard all day, chopping up wood for the fire pit out back and mowing the grass. He had just taken a shower, so he smelled like a bar of soap. You gotta take your medicine so you don't get sick again. You did pretty good last night, so tonight should be a piece of cake. I scrunched my face in protest and shook my head as I remembered how my first attempt at swallowing the pill had made me gag, and I wanted Dad to know that I didn't want to take the medicine. How about we make the same deal as last night, he said. Dad held the glass in his hand and rested the bottom on his thigh. I'll tell you another story if you don't give me a fuss. How's that? I agreed. Hearing one of Dad's story was definitely worth taking medicine, even if it was the nasty syrup kind. Swallowing the pill was easier that night. Swallowing the pill was actually easier altogether if I took a big enough drink of Sprite. Dad got up from the edge of the bed and killed the light emanating from the bulb on my ceiling, and the lamp on my bedside was left to distribute a dull glow without competition. I slunk down and nestled under my covers as Dad refound his seat. I peeked across my room to the window, remembering Dad's story from last night and wondering who had opened that window while I slept. The window was closed now, and I'd locked it to make sure things stayed that way. Once upon a time, Dad began. He sat cross-legged and hunched over to rest his elbows on his thighs. I pulled my covers tighter into my body and smiled. I could tell by Dad's grin that this was going to be creepy like the one the night before. Once upon a time, Dad began. He sat cross-legged and hunched over to rest his elbows on his thighs. I pulled my covers tighter into my body and smiled. I could tell by Dad's grin that this story was going to be creepy like the one the night before. The story was about a haunted castle. The ghost that lived there was menacing and ferocious. He was the spookiest scary ghost ever to float the earth. The ghost's name was Oliver von Bazar, and he lived a great life but died a horrible death. A long time ago, Oliver von Bazar was a French prince. He was engaged to the prettiest woman ever born. Her beauty was so extravagant that it couldn't be shackled by such insignificant words like gorgeous and lovely. The damsel's name was Lauren Sinclair. Wise old men compared Lauren's radiant blonde locks and her velvety flesh to a woman named Helen of Troy. Lauren's beauty was divine. Oliver and Laura were in love, but an evil baron by the name of Louis Catorze was also in love with Lauren. Louis Catoris envied the bond between them so much that he decided to separate the two lovers. One night, Louis poisoned Oliver's wine at a party. Oliver spent the next two days in hell, vomiting, battling a blistering fever, and gasping for air. With his last words, Oliver vowed to haunt his castle so that no soul other than Lauren could spend more than one night in the castle, even after Lauren died. "'Oliver did many different things to scare the castle's visitors. "'My favorite was when Oliver wedged knives, axes, and blades "'into the cushions of a couch while no one was near, "'and when someone entered the room, "'Oliver would manifest out of thin air, "'stroll over to the lethal piece of furniture, "'and impale himself slowly and painfully. "'The castle's guests that witnessed this act of sadism "'were so horrified that they left the country. "'Some vacated the continent.' The ending of this story was much better than the previous nights. This story ended when Oliver von Brasar scared an old lady to death. Since then, no one ever returned. Dad said that Oliver was still roaming the castle in France, longing for a reunion with his bride-to-be. I could barely hold my eyes open by the time Dad was finished. I stumbled through saying my prayers. When his fingers reached the light switch, Dad stood up and paused. He said, Good night, Danny boy. Sweet dreams. Good night. He flicked off the switch and left me to fall asleep in darkness. October 5th, 2010. Today is Wednesday. I had another therapy session with Dr. Feller today, and I didn't want to tell Dr. Feller about anything important, and my eyes kept getting sucked into the white abyss that hangs over his office. That painting of a Venetian canal hung above me like an ill-intentioned shadow. I kept the reoccurring dreams and thoughts I'd been having locked up inside my head. I told Dr. Feller about how I'd vomited in the cafeteria while eating lunch and made a mess all over the lunch table, but I didn't tell him that I'd caused myself to puke by sticking my fork too far down my throat. I wanted everyone to think my stomach was sick. So I'd been making myself throw up, hoping that Dr. Feller would prescribe me the same medicine that my pediatrician had given me. Dr. Feller looked like that wrinkly old doctor anyway, so why couldn't he give me the same medicine? And both of them wanted to hurt me. The doctor that Mom took me to loved giving me shots and ramming popsicle sticks down my throat. He'd laughed hysterically while he watched me dry heave. I can still hear him laughing at me. And Dr. Feller always judges me, He knows that I killed my parents, and he tells everyone that I did. Dr. Feller tortures me with his judgments. I hate them both. I wish I could kill them both. The cafeteria served macaroni and cheese today. My puke mess was lumpy and yellow, and it stunk of apples and dirty diapers. Some puke even splashed onto Raymond Carr's plate. Raymond is my sixteen-year-old friend that lives in the state-appointed bedroom next to mine. He has black hair and emerald eyes. Raymond is chunky. Raymond's flesh is pale like the moon's cold surface. He was sentenced here a year ago because he accidentally killed both of his parents and his four dogs. One day, a voice in Raymond's head told him that there were beehives in his dog's fur, so he drenched his dogs in gasoline and lit all four dogs on fire. Everything inside the house except for Raymond was ash within two hours. When puke got on his plate, Raymond didn't even flinch. He didn't even stop eating. He called it natural seasonings and even made a song he sang all day. It goes, Lunch and natural seasonings, lunch and natural seasonings, lunch and natural seasonings, yum, yum, yum. I was the last in the house to wake. The medicine had worked for the second night in a row, but I still hated that mean old doctor. My parents were waiting for me in the living room when I exited the hallway. They sat together on the couch and stared. I knew that something bad had happened as soon as I noticed how the lazy boy chair had been moved to face the couch. Mom and Dad had positioned the furniture the same way when they told me that Uncle Joe had died. Danny, come over here and sit across from me and your mother, Dad had said. He was holding Mom's hand. She had a pained expression on her face, as if Dad was squeezing her hand too hard. "'Can I have breakfast first? I'm hungry.' I looked at the oven's clock, which read eleven-thirty. But for some reason I was still tired. "'No, Daniel, now. Come over here and sit down,' Dad said. Mom said, as I sat down in the leather recliner, "'Do you love me? Were you trying to hurt me? Tell me the truth, Daniel.' Mom's eyes looked big and wet. She wasn't crying, but I could tell she wanted to. My mouth gaped. What was she talking about? Of course I loved her. I love both my parents. Danny, Dad said, I don't understand. What would compel you to do something so dangerous and stupid? The story I told you last night was made up. You know that, don't you? Someone would really get hurt if they did it in real life. What do you mean? Oh, don't play dumb with me, Daniel. You know exactly what I'm talking about. No, I don't. A tear dropped on the mom's cheek and rolled down her face. I could feel tears well up behind my eyes, too. I hated being in trouble. It made me feel embarrassed and uncomfortable, and I loved my parents, and I didn't want them to be mad at me. The couch, Daniel. I'm talking about what you did to the couch last night. We're so ashamed of you, mom added. "'I didn't do anything to the couch, I swear.' "'I scanned the couch, and nothing appeared to be wrong with it. "'I tried to remember if I'd spilled ice cream or pop on the couch lately, "'but nothing came to mind. "'Oh, really,' Dad said. "'Then how did every single knife in the kitchen get into the living room "'and get stuck in the couch cushions, huh? "'Remember that from the story? "'Explain that to me. "'Did the knives grow legs?' "'I was silent for a moment. "'I looked around, trying to find the knives.' "'but they were nowhere. "'I remember the story. "'I loved the story. "'That had been my favorite part, "'but I didn't do anything to imitate it. "'Why were Mom and Dad doing this to me? "'Was Dad playing a trick on me? "'I hadn't opened the windows yesterday. "'But that was in one of his stories, too. "'I already put the knives away,' Dad said, "'when he saw me looking around for them. "'I didn't touch the knives last night. "'Denying his accusations were making things worse.' Dad got even more furious, and he really started yelling. He grounded me for a week with no allowance, no friends, no video games, and no television. I sat in my bedroom for the rest of the day. Mom came in and stole all of my action figures that were sprinkled on the floor and said I wasn't allowed to play with them. So I sat in my room and read the Goosebumps book Mom had borrowed from the library. I read the first 30 pages of Bad Hair Day but I got tired and took a nap. I wasn't getting sick anymore, but I hadn't been sleeping well the last couple nights. I blame that on the medicine. I woke up from my nap when Mom brought dinner into my room. She set the paper plate and glass of milk down on my bedside table and left. The only thing she said was, Daniel, your father and I are very disappointed in you. Those were the last words she ever said to me. I ate and spent the rest of the night wiggling around on my dinosaur waterbed, making it slosh and sway and pretending I was Captain Blackbeard battling the stormy waters on the high seas. I also spent a lot of time thinking about that story Timmy and Charlie told me the previous day. Timmy and Charlie said that Lizzie Borden lived a long time ago and that one night she crept into her parents' bedroom and slaughtered them. She hacked her dad with an axe over fifty times, and her mom about a hundred, and Lizzie never even got in trouble for it. They put her in jail, but let her go after a few days. This story fascinated me. I wondered why a little girl would want to do such a thing. I wondered how she felt as the axe blade cracked her parents' skull and splattered their blood. Did Lizzie feel guilty? Did she feel happy? Timmy and Charlie even taught me a song about her. Lizzie Borden had an axe and gave her father forty whacks, and when she saw what she had done, she gave her mother forty-one. I sang the song over and over that night while playing on my bed. I stopped singing when Dad barged in and ordered me to get ready for bed. Dad was quiet and businesslike while tucking me in. He used the least amount of words possible when making me take my stomach medicine and say my prayers. You don't deserve a bedtime story, he said, before I can even think about asking for one. Dad? I said as he got up and left the room. Yes. He turned around and looked at me, as if I deserved a noose around my neck. Do you still love me? Yes, Daniel. Your mother and I still love you. We always will. We're just very angry because of what you did last night. Sweet dream, son. Dad flicked off the light and closed the door. I had trouble falling asleep that night. The song about Lizzie Borden was stuck in my head. Lizzie Borden had an axe and gave her father forty whacks, and when she saw what she had done, she gave her mother forty-one. Images of a girl with horns protruding from her forehead, ripping out and eating her mother's intestines, danced through my mind while trying to fall asleep. I curled into the fetal position and hugged my T-Rex comforter tightly. The next thing I saw were the freckles of a red-haired police officer as he shook me awake. My hands were zip-tied together, and I felt as if my whole body had been dipped in something slimy. Even though I didn't know what was going on, I felt horror and guilt was over me. I looked into the window across the room. The sun was still hibernating, but police cars outside flung red and blue lights through the window's glass and onto my dinosaur wallpaper. They looked like a lighthouse spotlight from a sailor's hallucination. ''Wake up, son,'' the police officer had said. He was hunched over my bed, and I could see into his blue eyes. There were three other policemen standing by the door talking to one another. I could only pick out a few words. Disgusting. Jimmy lost his lunch. I thought I was dreaming all this until I felt the red-haired officer scoop me up in his arms. I was in such a state of confusion, I couldn't understand the words coming out of the policeman's mouth as he carried me. I must have fainted or fallen back asleep because the next thing I remember, I was waking up in a room containing nothing but the bed I was sleeping on and a silver toilet. October 6th, 2010. Today is Thursday. Dr. Feller stopped by my room earlier to tell me about the anti-nausea pill I took four years ago, back when everyone thought I was just an innocent child. Dr. Feller sat down on my bed and read from a yellow notepad as I paced the room. He wore a white dress shirt and a purple tie that reminded me of the painting his wife had painted. He looked like the doctor my mom took me to years ago and used to shine light in my eyes, ears, and nose. What if this was actually the same man? He looks the same. Has he followed me all these years? What if he's been trying to ruin my life year after year, day after day? Yes, he's the same man. He framed me. And now I rot in this mental asylum that is actually a maximum security prison for people who are not guilty. Raymond is not guilty. Everyone here is not guilty. This is all a sick game that doctors play on their patients. The prescription was called omopraclizine. Known side effects are lack of sleep, a suppressed appetite, a severe rash, temporary loss of taste and smell, diarrhea, and dizziness. The drug was new in 2006 and is currently only used in hospitals for severe cases of prolonged nausea. Dr. Feller said an orderly would stop by tonight before I go to bed to administer the proper dosage. I hope this will help you settle your stomach, Dr. Feller said. As I sit in a goblin-sized desk and write in this journal, there is literally nothing left in my stomach. I stuck my finger down my throat three times last night, once this morning, and twice this afternoon. I need that medicine. Omopraclizine forced me to kill my parents. I know that for a fact. It must have. The medicine made me sleepwalk and reenact stories that I'd thought about just before falling asleep. Timmy and Charlie used to sleepwalk, so why couldn't I? It's possible, right? And I even found a little article about sleepwalking in the child psychology magazine that Dr. Feller gave me. That was probably what my mother was reading about, not disturbed children. If someone, anyone, is reading my words, please neglect the small park marks on this page where my tears are now falling. Yes, maybe I did kill my parents, but not consciously. I swear on the Bible that it wasn't me. I didn't know what I was doing. I was asleep, I promise. I would never want to kill my parents, never in a million years. "'Dr. Feller wins this twisted game. I quit. He gets to have the last laugh. "'Tonight, after I take my dose of omeprazole, "'I'm going to have Raymond whisper a bedtime story through the barred window of both ourselves. "'I want him to tell me about Donald Dickens. "'He was an inmate here at McLean Juvenile Psychiatric Institution "'until a month ago when he killed himself.' Donald Dickens took a pen and stabbed himself in the stomach fifteen times. He bled and bled, but didn't die, so he pierced the pen into his throat five more times. Donald took twenty-five minutes to die. Tonight, that sadistic doctor will finally have finished me off, just like he did to my parents. No matter what, this will be my last journal entry. Sweet dreams.
3: That was A.C. Lippert's Sweet Dreams as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is the avatar for a three-kilometer sentient starship that is parked, probably uncomfortably, close to the third planet. Surprisingly, he has not yet been discovered. He is very happy that the inhabitants have discovered enough technology that he can communicate in this limited function. Any communications can be directed to www.theboojum.org. Link, of course, will be in the show notes. That will be our show for the evening. Children of the Night, join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.